Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg. Here are my interviews for the latest installment of Flick City. All of these movies are currently out in some form right now, whether it be theaters, in digital, on demand, etc., etc. There are three interviews in this episode. First up, I'm going to break it down on the intro, on this intro on what you're going to get, and I'm going to separate that, these segments by either just the quick tone, the the bleep tone that you, you hear between interviews or might even separate them with a trailer if I can find them and put them in this interview. All three of these movies I, I enjoyed. I liked watching and I'll tell you some of the positive aspects of each movie before you decide whether to watch this movie. But anyways, thanks again for supporting me and Anderson here on Cinematics. Speaking of which, I just saw Anderson a couple days ago. We did our Patreon. We covered the movies Birdie, which stars Matthew Modine and Nicolas Cage. And the 2001 follow-up, 2010. And that was Anderson's Choice. We're covering the year 1984. And whenever he starts off this Patreon episode, he's, he mentions it to our select members that it is the, the most fun and and the most fun he, he has actually doing a something on the mic. I don't... He does, he's, he's not he's not like me. He's not one of these liars, okay? Slithery liars like me or manipulators. So he's pretty truthful. So most importantly, if you want to hear Anderson's finest supposed hour or two from his vantage point or him having the most fun, join our Patreon for the catch all of $5. Every month we do a, we spotlight a year in cinema. I pick a movie, he picks, picks a movie. Usually it's a movie that we haven't covered, we haven't seen, and then we talk about it. So join up, tell us what you think, etc., etc. Okay. Now going back to these interviews. Now the first interview is is with Lyrica Okano. If you don't know the name, you might have seen her as the lead, as one of the leads in the Hulu series, Marvel's Runaways. It's currently on Hulu right now, streaming it. I believe they didn't renew it after three seasons, but it lasted three seasons. And it really, on a on a on just a minority representation level, and also on a Marvel representation level, Runaways was actually based on, I think, on a series by the guy named Brian K. Vaughn, and that was a critically lauded series as well. The actual, the comic book series, that is. The actual series itself, which is on Hulu, was impactful in my point of view because Lyrica Okano, as an Asian American, it's just great seeing, for me, being part Filipino, part Thai, and 50. Yeah, I'm 50 years old. My The first interview I've ever had was back in 1991. All right? I, I did this movie called Mind Walk or something, and, and I interviewed the director outside the UCLA Theater as a cub reporter for the UCLA Daily Bruin. Over the last 30 plus years, I probably, I can't even, I've interviewed thousands of people, I'm assuming hundreds upon hundreds of people at least, and Asian American or Asian representation out of that 100 percentile, maybe 5% of the time, if at the most, okay, over the last 30 years in aggregate. But the good news is, I think that within the last couple of years, I've been interviewing more Asian and Asian American people in the cinema and television industry. For me, as a media member, it's, it warms my cold heart to know that there is, the times are changing in, in a good way, at least when it comes to cinema and television as far as minority representation. I've always been of the fact that, look, when I was young, I just wanted the TV series or movies to entertain me. And that was my base level of culpability. You know, I'm just, I just want to be entertained. As I get older now, I, I see there are repercussions. It's great to actually have different faces and voices 
on whatever media platform you are, not for not just for older people like me, more importantly, the young people who are impressionable and are just filtering and growing into the arts as a youth or in the you know in their teens or when they're kids in their twenties and these this kind of minority representation hopefully wrapped within great storytelling will propel them to even hopefully anchor or create even better stories for generations to come so hopefully that's that is the overall goal i'm glad that i had those even though it's 10 minutes with lyrica lyrica okano i'm and she is a co-star in press play i'm just glad that she's out there and she's doing the good work of I was, gonna, I was gonna say the good work of the Lord, but just the good work of your, your, of the, of artists out there. And she's representing us Asians, minorities really, really well. And I can't wait to actually watch Marvel's Runaways eventually down the road when I start watching TV shows. But kudos to her. Actually, kudos to this film as well. Press play centers on this woman. Her name's Clara, Clara Rugard. That's the actress. She plays Laura and Laura falls in love with this guy named Harrison. Harrison is played by Lewis Pullman. If you know the last name Pullman, Lewis is the son of actor Bill Pullman. And so Laura falls in love. It's a meet cute with Harrison. Harrison is is an employee at a vinyl vinyl shop, which also houses mixtapes. The owner of the shop is Danny Glover. It's set in Hawaii. It's a very idyllic, romantic drama, this press play. But the thing is, the actual moniker press play refers to a mixtape that Harrison makes for Laura. And and what happens is when Harrison passes away, it's obviously a tragic circumstance. When he passes away, they're in the throes of their relationship. And he passes away and he leaves her a mixtape. When she plays the mixtape, she can she actually is transported to the time when that song actually was part of the, their lives. So she can actually time travel via this mixtape on her on her Sony Walkman. And, and she tries obviously to save Harrison from his impending death. So the, the construct of, of press play is, will she, can she change time to actually make sure Harrison by the end of the story, her story and his story does not die? So it'll be interesting to see what you think of the ending of this movie. Um, yeah, I, I, I found it interesting and debatable. I have my, 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 I have my opinion regarding the ending of Press Play, and I don't know if I'm, I'm going to interview the uh, director, co-writer Greg Bjorkman next week. I might, and if I do it, I, I'm going to actually ask him about the ending, and that'll I'll leave all that stuff for our Patreon subscribers. But I like the ending of Press Play. I had a different version that I, I would have preferred personally as a viewer, but overall, this movie has really cool music from just, I, I believe there was this one, one-off group called The Thorns. I, I forgot what, what song is from The Thorns is in the movie, but it's really effective and resonant. There's some music from Japanese Breakfast in here. It's a very, it's a very lyrical, resonant, daydreamy kind of film that I appreciated. Lyrica Okano plays the sister of Harrison and she sets up her best friend Laura with Harrison. And so she's a co-star in this movie press play. So that's the first interview with Lyrica Okano. The second interview I have is with Livia Tapalis. She is the writer, director, I'm assuming producer and star of the film, The Lost Girls. And The Lost Girls, it's a weird, it's a weird in a good way movie where it centers on several generation of women and how their lives are affected by Peter Pan. 
and she plays one of the women in the the I guess what I believe it's Wendy or Jane, one of those women. I'm gonna look her up right now. But she's the main character in this in this movie, and she just really wants to go to Neverland and just be with. Sorry for the typing. She just wants to be with Peter. She wants to go out and and fly in the night and and be lost in that arrested state of development, that eternal youth. And unfortunately, we, we live. We none of us live in Neverland. We, we although we want to, but she doesn't. By by having there's a good thing about having a sense of imagination and a sense of youth and and a, a really young look outlook on the world. But the problem is sometimes you end up the collateral damage are the people that you love. You know, you leave them when you're off, off into La La Land or in this case Neverland. Oh yeah, Livia DePaulo. She plays this character. Wendy, the grown-up version of Wendy, and her feelings of never being visited by Peter Pan and wanting to always go into the, into this world leads to her not loving and paying attention to the people she loves in her life as much as possible, which is not a good thing, not a very, very good thing. The movie also stars Vanessa Redgrave, and also what's really cool is Vanessa Redgrave's daughter, Jolie Richardson, is in this movie as well. Ian Glenn from Game of Thrones is in this flick as well. And Louis Partridge, and you might know him from Enola Holmes. He is one of these next big thing kind of actors. He's really good in this movie. He plays Peter Pan. And Emily Carey, a young girl who I fully, I believe, I think she's gonna, going to be in the upcoming HBO series. What is it? I think it's called House of Dragons or something. It's House of the Dragon. House of the Dragon. She has a pretty big role on that upcoming series. But she's very good as the younger the teen Wendy in The Lost Girls. So very interesting movie. I, the one thing I really enjoyed about The Lost Girls was seeing Vanessa Redgrave and Jolie Richardson. There's always some extra added value when I see these really wonderful actresses in this movie, seeing the, the new young talent and Emily Carey and Louis Pat Partridge. And also there's Ella Ray Smith. She's plays a daughter of the, the, of Wendy and she's very good in this movie as well. So some really good acting in this film. I also like, Olivia DePaulis' character playing Wendy, she's pretty much unlikable throughout almost all of this movie. And I like the way, I like whenever a writer decides to make their respective characters likable because, unlikable, because when you do that, a lot of times the audience or the people watching will really not, will check out. I, for me, maybe I'm sociopathic. I just check in whenever I have that because, because usually the writer is daring the audience member or the watcher to really engage in the story, even with a very unlikable person helming the narrative. I, I just love that construct. It's a biased love for me. So that is The Lost Girls currently out now on demand. And you can I'll have a link on the show notes where you can get it. That's with Livia DePaulis. And then finally finally I I um I think last week I I released my interview with the actors and co writers from the film Brian and Charles. Brian and Charles is a very interesting movie and if you haven't if you haven't actually checked my interview out, interview out with those actors and co-writers that's very very cool and they're very nice guys and again sorry for the, the for the actual typing as well but it's it, Brian and Charles are really tender, cool, funny, dark at times film and it centers on Brian a lonely dude living out in Wales. He is a failed inventor, but the problem is, I mean, not the problem. The cool thing is one day he decides to build a robot and the robot works. The robot is, is Charles. So lonely, lonely heart, Brian living out in Wales ends up creating a robot named Charles and the movie centers on their 
relationship and friendship, and it's really cool. So this interview is with Jim Archer, who is the director and co-writer of Brian and Charles and producer Rupert. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Hold on one second. I believe it's Mahende, M-A-J-E-N-D-I-E. So those are my three interviews today. And I apologize regarding the interview with Brian and Charles. It might, they're a little bit off mic and hopefully I'll try to mix it well enough where they're audible enough. So Brian and Charles right now is, it's weird. Just Google your location, wherever your theater is and see if Brian and Charles is playing in your neighborhood. It's sort of a gradual rollout. It initially was released on June 17th, but as the weeks progress, more theaters to come for Brian and Charles. Very interesting movie. And the robot is played by a human being, and that's one of the actors I interviewed last week. Okay, so it stars David Earl and Chris Hayward, who you it's I interviewed from a previous episode, and for but for this episode you're gonna get director, co-writer, no, director Jim Archer, my bad, and also producer Rupert Mehende. All right. So again, before we go. It is Lyrica Okano from Press Play, number one. Number two is The Lost Girls filmmaker and actress, Livy DePaulis. And last but definitely not least is Brian and Charles director, Jim Archer, and producer, Rupert Mahende. Thank you guys so much for supporting this year's cinematics. And I'll be back with Anderson in a couple of weeks. Next week, I'll be with Bruce, my buddies Bruce and Eric, and we're, we're going to be covering the first week of cinematics, what to expect in the coming weeks regarding cinema. All right, guys. And you know what? I'm going to leave my email in the show notes. We'd love to hear some of your feedback. I know all of you, most of you, when you had feedback, you go to Anderson at AndersonCowan.com. I understand he's the one who is, uh, he's smarter than me, but I'm going to leave my email as well. So if you have any thoughts, questions, suggestions, complaints, I'm going to leave my email as well. So you can actually get at me and, Etc. Etc. Okay. So love you guys, and thanks. Hope hopefully some of these interviews you will enjoy. And take care. Bye. Why do you like records so much? You have this tangible thing right there in front of you. I love that. I have something for you. You are now recording the very first song on our mixtape. gonna think I'm crazy. No, no, I won't. Um, What? I'm from the future. Like, like, hoverboard future? I'm not kidding. You're gonna die. I don't really know how to say this without sounding crazy, but, um, I can travel through time. How is this even possible? I don't know, but every time I play a song on a mixtape, it takes me back in time to the moment we first heard it together. Laura? Oh! How am I here? What are you talking about? What, what, what? People say that music transcends space and time, but I've always thought it was just a metaphor. I don't know how much time we have left. We have a chance to save you. We have to be careful. I'll just change the things that happen on the day that I die. The universe has a plan. We can't deviate from that plan. Maybe you're not meant to save it. Most people only get one shot in with the person they love. You've been given two. I can't just sit here with a second chance and just let him die. Wait, wait a minute. I have to try. 
You really think it's the only way? Nothing else has worked. As long as you're alive, I'll be okay. See the future. First off, regarding press play, I remember when cassette tapes and CDs and going to record stores and whatnot were the thing to do mm-hmm. and making mixtapes were the part, part of the thing to do. Is this whole mixtape craze a fantasy construct behind press play? Or do you feel that a lot of people, the younger generation, they are feeling the need for a little bit of physical media as well and the idea of that mixtape as opposed to a Spotify playlist? I think, I think the latter. I think we do miss something actually tangible everything is so digital at least for me i i was born in 94 so i think i'm not a millennial i'm a gen what is it called gen z is that no gen z i don't know but because i think i'm in that generation where i got to kind of be a part of a little bit of both you know before everything started to become digital and online um, I do find those things very nostalgic. Nostalgic, I mean, I wasn't really alive yet to enjoy like cassettes or vinyls all that much, but I, my parents didn't. It was around, so I knew, you know, that they existed. So, yeah, it does. I think it, it struck a nerve for me, at least, in that sense. A lot of actors and filmmakers say that one of their reasons for actually taking projects is a part of that is the actual location, location, location. And for you, were you able to actually appreciate the location or was it pretty much hard work from the jump? Meaning it was just work and go to wherever you're living and go to work again. Well, we, we, I I was so lucky um, and just so honored to be able to, you know, film in such a beautiful location like Hawaii. Um, Yeah, no, I, I was able to kind of, I guess, work with Greg and Clara and Lewis, uh, I guess, to prep for the film. We had a few rehearsals and um, yeah. And then while doing that, we were able to kind of venture around the island and and see different sites and just kind of hang out. And that was really beautiful. And also, like for me, I was there for about two and a half months altogether. And I just all the amazing like food, the food there is just phenomenal. So I was really lucky too to be able to just eat everything. <laughs> Did you also like the the themes behind press play, the fact that okay, it's a little bit of a time travel construct within the mixtape, but it's also saying about really the people who leave you in this life, who pass away, yeah. they're not gone. You can always appreciate them and you can really right. time travel in your mind as well. They're never gone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I mean, I'm a hopeless romantic in that sense, and also a music lover. And I, I think when I read the script, I, yeah, time travel is cool. I, I love love stories, but I really thought it was interesting how they were able to weave in the the different songs throughout the the, the film and be able to make it so real. Um, I thought they did a really beautiful job at doing that. And also the message just about being really present and enjoying every moment you have with the people you love, um, especially, you know, while we're in year 2022, the pandemic has been a part of our lives now for a while. Uh, it's the message is very uh, real. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on the most important level, Clara is your is a close friend of yours. But what's yeah. it like? Yeah. What's it like for you to actually watch her shine? Because you know you're working with someone who is pro- possibly could be just a really big star just because just because of her diverse work. I mean, 
what's yeah. it like being a friend and then also seeing her just shine on that sense? Oh man. Um, I, I, I had to, I had the, the wonderful experience of becoming her friend while also seeing her acting for the first time, like in person. Um, so it, it was, it, it's, it was just, you know, beautiful to be able to kind of, I mean, you know, I'm in love with Clara. Who's, who's not, you know, fall in love with Clara as I got to fall in love with her, her work as well. Um, she's super talented and super kind. And I, I have to say when I came on to film this movie, I was quite tired just from shooting a long season of a show that I was on. And, but she just really, she breathed in new air for me. Um, she, she was so excited to be there and just such a breath of fresh air. Um, amazing person. So I got to thank her for that. We started the interview with that, thinking about generations. I'm, I'm Generation X. I'm Gen X. So I grew up as a cinephile with my only uh, representation regarding Asian American representation as, you know, something like 16 Candles, you know, no disrespect to the acting in the project. Yeah. But what does it feel like for you to know that there are people younger than us, they're going to grow up on Nico and Runaways, and they're going to see someone like Nico really shine and actually anchor a really lived in series. That must mean a lot. That must possibly be the most, one of the most important parts of what you do maybe, or am I wrong on that? I think it is. I I, I didn't even realize that it was such a huge part of why I did what I did until I was actually on the show and got to meet all the the fans and also the people that love Nico so much and, and told me stories about how much they saw themselves in, in this character and how it was pretty much the first time that they felt that way. Um, and yeah, like it takes me back to when I was a little kid and pretty much the only stories that I could relate to were like Ghibli films, like it's animated, but it's like just, you know, Miyazaki movies. And that was kind of all I had to be like, yeah, that's, that could be me with in spirited away with, with the, all the, the gods and the monsters and the bathhouse. Uh, so yeah, uh, we've come, we've come quite away uh, with uh, Nico and runaways, but we still have a lot more to do. Yeah. Were you on set on the day with Japanese breakfast? Were you able to see, get that shoot shot? Because yeah, I, yeah. I haven't read crying in H Mart yet, but I can't, can't wait to read it, but that must've been, been kind of cool for you. An added perk as, as far as like, oh my job gosh. Goes. Yeah. Like when I first, uh, I think when I first read the script, they weren't a part of it. Like it was a different song, a different band that was supposed to play for that scene. And then I think on the Island while we were shooting, Greg, the director told me that, he was going to have Japanese breakfast play instead. And I was like, yes, like awesome choice. He was like, what, you know them? And I'm like, why? Of course, Japanese breakfast. I, I'm a huge fan. And um, yeah, we were all staying in the same hotel. And I kind of, they kind of, I ran into them. I was in the elevator. They came into the elevator. I stared at them for like a couple seconds too long. And then they freaked out kind of and left. Um and then, of course, you know, later on, they found out that I was part of this movie. Um, but yeah, I'm a huge fan. It's crazy. We're lucky to have them. I'm uh, in the middle of a post-midlife crisis right now, so I really want to get back into gaming. But for you, is is it true that you're going to um, reprise your role in, in Midnight Suns? Is that correct? Is that inaccurate regarding that I, game? Working? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. While I, I, I thought I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I thought it was secret, but then someone told me it was on IMDb. 
on Wikipedia and everything and the okay, whole Okay, well then there you go. So it's no secret. Uh, yes, I am returning uh as Nico Minoru to I guess the Marvel Universe Midnight Suns. Um yeah, I voice her on that game. Is that a different kind of acting for you and a different sense of gratification regarding that process? It's so different. I um I was really nervous to be a part of this video game because I'm I don't consider myself a voice actor like I think I mean I have so much respect for people who do it because it's it's a lot of like training like it's not just you step in front of a mic and you you're able to do this amazing work like it comes from somewhere so I felt really I was like am I the right person for this job and you know I'm glad I did it though it was a great learning experience and I got to you know, reunite with uh, my character again, but it was, it definitely felt a little different from like shooting the show. Last question. Just, I know this is the annoying favorite movie question, but can you name one of your all time favorite movies and what is it about the specific film that still resonates with you? Uh, Kiki's delivery service. Um, It's a Ghibli. Is it, I pronounce it Ghibli because I'm Japanese. Um, It's a Ghibli film. Um, made by Hayao Miyazaki. Um, I think I just always kind of, as a young kid watching Kiki's delivery service, I saw myself in Kiki or I saw her in me. And and yeah, I was a witch for every Halloween. And I was like, that's my girl. That's my character. Um, and just the story about like self-exploration and and kind of finding your home and your your family. I think that really hits close to home because I kind of have to do that work all the time yeah you know life it gets us too busy but do you ever have these fantasies of having a full full day of me like a full miyazaki marathon for a full day with your busy schedule and whatnot yes i i want to go to japan and go to the museum like is it still open do you know oh, i don't know i i never even heard of the, i never even heard of the miyazaki museum so i'm i'm clueless. there okay it's a thing. i don't i mean i don't know after the pandemic how it is but I, I'm hoping that it's still there because I really want to go one day. But there's a museum. I would spend a whole day there. Great. Really enjoy the film, Lyrica. And thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It was amazing talking to you. All right. Thank Take you. care. You too. Take care. Bye. Livia, before we begin, can you please pronounce your full name so on the podcast, in the video, <laughs> I don't butcher it like I usually do. So, My name is Livia DePaulis. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. Leave it the pause. Now, first off, you get this question asked a lot, but just on a film 101 level, what is the key to actually directing a feature where you're also the lead actor in it as well? What are, what are the key elements for you? I'm sure you probably learned along the process, but what is the key key elements to actually make it making it successful? Um pre-production <laughs> like for everything, preparation, you know, pre-production and my process on set is to have all discussions ahead of time. Had a, if I'm in the scene, I would have all discussions with you know the the heads of departments and most importantly the DOP ahead of time and the actors obviously. And then once we're shooting, I would just roll and do some, you know a few takes, maybe three takes. Um, and just, you know, I can't just stop, stop, stop and start. So we'll do a few takes in a row. And if I feel that, you can feel that if it's working or not working. Um, 
And then once I feel like, oh, it's working, then I would go back um, on the monitor and check it out. <laughs> and then usually I'm like, oh, let's do a few more. <laughs> but then it would be, again, another like two or three in a row, right? Yeah. Like just without cutting. Um, and that that's pretty much it. And then, uh, you know, very lengthy editing process. <laughs> You know, one of the great things about your film is after watching this film, I'm sure a lot of cinephiles will want, want to actually read the novel. So from you, it's a flip side. What was it about the novel that just made you really immerse within the story? It's just such a generational epic uh, take, you know, so. So I read this, I read the book in 2003. So we're coming up on 20 years now. <laughs> it's crazy. And um and I loved it. You know, I just loved it very much. Um, and I immediately thought, oh, this should be a movie. And I wasn't thinking about being a director. Um, I was an actress. And actually, at the time when I read the book, I was taking a break <laughs> from acting. And I kind of dropped out and went to Mexico and, you know, hung out on a beach for a while. <laughs> and um, and I was reading a lot. And, and uh, it just... It just resonated with me. I mean, it, I wanted to read it. I was curious about it because I love the Peter Pan story so much. And I was very interested in any kind of uh, deeper look at the story, right? Or different look at the story. And then um, Laurie Fox wrote a very feminist book. And uh, as a very young woman, I just... It was all kind of a new language for me, but it was a language that made a lot of sense. And and also I feel that I connected with it um, on a very personal level. Um, I, I grew up, you know, I was like a very troubled teenager. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and even like at that time where I had taken like a break and I was like in Mexico being like a hippie on the beach, like what was I really doing, right? So I felt I, like that I was a bit of like in Neverland, like that was like a bit of my Neverland experience. And, um, and then I gave it to some, some of my girlfriends. I was like, you've got to read this book. You've got to read this book. <laughs> and then um, eventually when I, after I made my first feature film, I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to try with that book. And uh, here we are. <laughs> what, what, you're not the hippie girl in Mexico on the beach anymore. It's almost 20 years since. So I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming this story must over the years, especially now, means even more to you than it did 20 years ago because the idea about mothers and daughters and you can see so many different stages, it must connect to you on a, on a really more profound level. Am I assuming that? Or? Absolutely. That's a very, very good point uh, because what resonated with me 20 years ago, it's different from what resonated with me you know, five years ago when I started writing the script. And I would say that actually it kind of goes both ways like through the work you look at it's not that you look at but you kind of re-examine um your own relationships like i i re-examine my own relationship with my mother through the writing of the script and then in the middle of all of this my mother passed so there was a whole another level there before you know that that that, that inevitably came up while I ended up 
Vanessa Redgrave and Jolie Richardson, <laughs> that connection, it's so hard to do in cinema and you decided to do it. And how awesome, I guess it's, it's hard to put into words, but if there's a way you can put that into words as far as them taking part in your really rich ensemble project, must have meant a lot to you as well. Yes, and I'm very grateful to both of them for accepting to do it. Um, we had cast Jolie first. And uh, and then um, Ellen Burstyn was originally attached to play the role that Vanessa played, uh, but with COVID, that was just not possible anymore because, I mean, nobody could travel. It was just impossible. And so then we went to Jolie and we asked, would, would it be okay with you if we would cast your mother? And she was, yes. <laughs> she said, yes. And Vanessa said, yes. And so it was kind of surreal, I have to say. Like, for me, it was not planned, and it was completely surreal. Uh, but, yeah, I'm very happy about it. Speaking of happy, how when you look at your your ensemble, how just proud of you of just the array of talent? You, you just – I'm on IMDb right now. Louis, Emily, right down the line. <laughs> is, this, is this one of these things where it's just serendipity that, or did you automatically just see that, oh, this person is just magical. I, I have to have his or her, him or her on this project. Can you just talk about that? Well, yeah. uh, we have to give it up to, <laughs> to Gemma Sykes, who is the casting director. And she has been, uh, she's a dear friend now. And she's been a very close collaborator. She's brilliant. And, uh, um, you know, I really loved Ian. I really wanted Ian for the part. So I was very happy that he agreed to do it. Um, and then for the young actors, you know, I, I got to take some credit for that because I just, you know, I, they auditioned and they were just great. Um, and we did, so we did in-person auditions I don't know, maybe like a week before the lockdown. <laughs> it was like, it was it was so intense. It was starting to happen, but we were like, I was just in denial. I was like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Like Italy was already locked down. Austria was already locked down. I was like, no, 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 England is going to be fine. Meanwhile, like the cases were like, oh. anyway, <laughs> so we did that. And then we did callbacks um, pretty much on Zoom. Uh, but the callbacks were really just a, a chat that I had with the actors. I had made my decisions already uh, during the the first audition. Um, with Louis specifically, there was a little bit of a discussion because um, the producers wanted to go for a more um, Peter Pan looking like uh, actor. And... And then we were discussing about casting diversity and I just really wanted to work. Like I just really thought Louis was the best actor and he was, you know, Enola Holmes had not come out yet. So, you know, we didn't know that he was going to become a star. <laughs> so, but I just really, I thought he was the best. I thought he, he was just, his energy was just so strong and he was, you know, he was just such a serious guy, you know, serious actor. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very glad. I'm very glad. And Ella Rice-Smith, she also auditioned. She sent me like a self-tape during lockdown. And then she came in and did like a, 
scene with Louis opposite Louis because I wanted to make sure they looked okay together uh, in the garden. <laughs> Wow, amazing! And, and of course, you know Emily with with the part of the narrative that she anchored. You, I'm sure you're at the you're at your editing bay and just saying, "Wow, this she just really pops out the screen." Did you automatically know that during the production, or was it just an added bonus just seeing you know on the on the edit as well? Look, I'm going to say this for me: Emily Carey was love at first sight. <laughs> for me, she was like there was there was like as soon as she auditioned, I was like, "This is it." And uh, I really think that she's she's very young, but I really think she's an amazing actress, an amazing actress. Emily can do whatever she can do, whatever. She's really, really good. What I what I love about the story of your film, Livia, is the fact that whenever someone says that he or she has a Peter Pan complex, sometimes that's, that's looked at as, as a good thing because wanderlust is is a good thing in a, in, a, in a sense. And staying young or, or wanting to stay young and having that imagination and always going to Neverland. But your film also posits the thought that – can you talk about the idea of – the need to stay in the moment because there are real consequences with you traveling off to someplace because the most important people in your life, the ones that you loved are here to travel with you and you're giving up a lot by going off to Neverland, you know? So. Absolutely. Um, yes. And I think that, you know, the movie really like looks, you know, tries to look at that. Uh, and it was, you know, the challenge of the movie was really to, um, you know, keep the preciousness of that Neverland, uh, keep the value of it, but reframe it because um, I think, and I'm learning this as I grow up (laughs) myself eventually, um, that, you know, different ages have different, different things that are fantastic and, and, and magical about that particular age. And uh, I want to just um, try and give value to to these different stages of life. You know, I loved how your your own character with with Wendy. She, you don't really you don't give her an out, meaning you don't make her absolutely sympathetic. You're you're actually making her a real person. There are real life consequences. Can you just talk about during your the, the whole? you know, adaptation and, and just making it an, a very uncompromising character where as a viewer, you're pulling for her, but a lot of times you're not. And then it eventually really fully rounds out. So talk about that aspect. Yeah, it, it was a challenge. <laughs> um, even in my first film, I was told, oh, you write these characters that are like, you know, the lead has got to be sympathetic. It's got to be sympathetic. And I'm like, yes and and no it's got to be real <laughs> for me most importantly it's it's got to be a real person um so i don't know <laughs> i don't know what to say about that i mean it, it for me it was important to to the story to have a normal person that uh, that had you know that lived this contradiction um and i think that there are a lot of women out there that are like that, you know, that, that, that do leave that contradiction. I'm sure my mother at some point in her life lived that contradiction of wanting to do something, you know, of, of, of not wanting to have that responsibility. Um, especially I think back in the days, you know, motherhood was really not 
such a choice. It was just something that you would just do. And what assumption is there to, 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 to say that every single woman wants to have a child and wants to be a mother. And that's the ultimate uh, realization for a woman. It's motherhood. And maybe it is, but can we say that the ultimate realization for a man is to be a father for every single man? I don't think so. (laughs) So I wanted to, you know, I think the challenging that, that, model makes the character probably a little bit bit less sympathetic and if you really want to look at things that way speaking of the way uh, you want to look at things that way i'm a huge cinephile and i'm thinking there's hundreds upon hundreds of film noirs and you can say that about westerns war films mother-daughter relationships i'm not thinking out of out of my top of my head i can't recommend hundreds of mother-daughter relationships. Was that one of the reasons why this movie, you really wanted to direct this movie as well? The fact that there is, I'm assuming, a scarcity in that as far as cinema goes. Well, uh, there is uh, the beautiful uh, Greta Gerwig. Gerwig? (laughs) Yeah, Gerwig, yeah. Yes, uh, but um, I think that the mother-daughter element uh, that it's very strong in the film was not my original motivation (laughs) to make the film I'm going to be honest with you Um, my original motivation was uh, the Neverland and then it evolved into uh, more of this mother-daughter story or I mean I guess it was always being that it's an adaptation the story was there right but I guess I was less conscious of that element um, that draw me in without me really being aware of it. That's amazing. Okay, final couple of questions for you is, and, and these are kind of tough questions, but right off the top of your head, can you name one of your all-time favorite movies and what is it about the specific film that still resonates with you today? Okay, I've, I've got the one. <laughs> You've got the one. And when I say this, it's always quite controversial, but one of my favorite movies, all-time favorite is E.T., like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the reason why is because I think he does that sense of longing and desire for connection and uh, solitude um, so well. Um and, and he does it in a fun way, and it is an adventure, and it's a great adventure. And I just loved it. And I still love it. Um, yeah. Did I answer the question? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And my final question is sort of like your favorite movie thing, but for our podcast, for one of my podcasts, my co-host Bruce Berkey, he actually asked our listeners to recommend a movie for him to watch. So, you know, that, that person will recommend a movie and he'll write it on a piece of paper and he'll put it in a box. Other than E.T., can you give, and other your other than your film as well, but can you, right off the top of your head, can you, what what's a movie that you would recommend and you'd want to put on that box for him to watch? as far as a movie. Right. Something that like I watched recently, either recently or just right off the top of your head that you really love that maybe it doesn't get too much attention that you, 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 you dig. I'm going to give you two. I'm not going to okay. give you one. I'm going to give you two. Thank the you. first yeah. one that came up, I watched recently. It's called the worst person in the world. And it's a Northern European film. <laughs> and it's 
wonderful. And it's a story of this woman who has a boyfriend and then accidentally meets another guy and she does not cheat on her boyfriend. And it's just very, very delicate, but very funny. It stayed with me for a while. And then another thing that I really need to mention, because I just watched, I was just at the Kampan Festival this week and I just watched this film. It's a Japanese film called Plan 75. It makes me cry just to even mention it. Um, and it's, um, it's a first feature and it's a story um, set in Japan. And it's a story of like how the government implements this plan. So it's a government plan, government funded plan for people over 75 to seek euthanasia. And it's, um, you know, I just had to go home and really reevaluate my entire life and, you know, this society and what am I doing with my life, really? Uh, it's so powerful and devastating that if you do have the chance to see this film, please, I really hope that it gets some kind of uh, international release because it's, to me, it's a masterpiece. And it's very simple, very quiet, very poetic and, and, uh, and devastating. And before I let you go... Olivia, the idea of actually getting a film out there into the universe and, uh, and and releasing it, it seems to me like just from the outsider's point of view, it seems to me an act of will and determination. How much just how much will and determination did you need over these years or last couple of years just to just to get it out there? You know. So. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's just um, you know, I, I always say I will this movie into existence (laughs) it's just you know you really have to for independent films you really the the filmmaker has to it has to be the most important thing for you it has to come first it has to come first otherwise it's just there's just it's just too too difficult so thank you so much for your time really enjoyed your film and you know good luck moving forward Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Take care. I'm building a robot. I don't know what I didn't think of it before. Be very, very, very handy. Strong. Fast. Agile. Can help me lift things around the house. I just take inspiration from stuff around me. You know, anything. Absolutely anything. That could be his ankle. And I'll just look around me and I go, what can I use? What can I use? Belly button. I've always wanted to build one. It's always been a scratch I've wanted to itch. Scratch, scratch, scratch. Like Mr. Williams over there. (laughs) I mean, who wouldn't want to build one? Eh? Who wouldn't want to build one? What do they call it? Artificial... Artif- what is it? Artificial intelligence. That's it, artificial intelligence. That's it. AI. <laughs> huh? AI. AI. What? AI. 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 Artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> First of all, the idea of actually expanding from... It's a very ambitious storyline just as a short but can you just talk about expanding it to a feature film? I'm sure there were a bunch of changes and just broadening sort of the canvas. What was the biggest challenge? 
Um, I guess the, the biggest challenge was keeping the sort of charm of the short and keeping the sort of s- s- tone and style while expanding the story. I think it was, um, yeah, we didn't want to like, we didn't want to like suddenly feel like we we're making like something too different, but at the mm. same time we realized we needed to like, like, you know, see more characters. I think the way we kind of thought about it was like, we'll build this village more. So like, we'll see <laughs> where Brian is and inevitably we'll then see like who these people are who live in that, in that place. But he's very lonely and the place he is is really isolated. So really only made sense to bring in a couple more characters and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's a, just a sort of fine balancing act of story wise to be like, okay, this is a film about isolation and loneliness yet it needs to last, you know, the length of the film. So it's kind of, um, just a lot of trial and error, I guess. And, and to try and keep all those characters in the world as real as possible, I guess, was a big sort of first year as well. But... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm really appreciative of all, of all the really good reviews it's receiving. But when I when I get the whole sweet and charming thing, that's great. Those are great compliments. But can you guys speak to the fact that your your film is much more than that? There, it's really about loneliness and the importance of connection and, and sort of finding your tribe no matter what. I, I I thought there's a lot of just more deeper elements in the whole idea that oh, it's it's a really fun, amiable film. But there's much more to that, I think. Yeah, yeah, we wanted it to be like, I mean, primarily we wanted it to be funny. Yeah, was yeah. Like, that was sort of odd, odd couple uh, comedy, ultimately. That was that was always the sort of foundation, definitely. That was the foundation, yeah. yeah. But we wanted like, then, yeah, yeah, we wanted these kind of, what I always found interesting about the, the short was like when I read the, I knew of the characters as these live characters, but when I read the short, it was just like, had all this emotion in it. And so like, uh, and which I just found this really interesting way to take those characters. So yeah, we wanted to sort of dive deeper into that in, in the film. And yeah, I think, it, I think especially now, like the sort of the theme of loneliness is kind of really important and like a lot of people kind of relate to it. So um, yeah, we didn't want to shy away from the darker stuff, mm. but like deal with it in a sort of a slightly different way. Also like in the short, it was sort of, we left it open to people people's own interpretation really and it was interesting to see people have have a different experience and take what they want from it that might not necessarily have been our original sort of um, motivation yeah yeah i really enjoy the production design behind this movie you actually feel you're in the town what what was can you just talk about in layman's terms the work at actually finding these locations that really feel not like disparate uh, sections but actually a really fully contained universe which i thought really worked for the film that was Jim. Jim driving around a lot on his own, <laughs> going on trips for a week in North Wales, and and, and our location manager Julia, sort of, because we knew the area we wanted to go to because it was the short was like literally twenty minutes down the road, so we knew the potential of the area. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of widening the shirt search and exploring all the all nooks and crannies to sort of find these hero locations. Yeah, that was that was yeah. really fun. That was like yeah. one of my favourite things. Like me and Julia just like we just go and these little trips and just drive around Wales by ourselves and just like going down dead ends, going on Google Maps and looking at the sort of satellite view and just trying to find abandoned places and then just like building the village because the village is kind of made of like three or four different villages and we just sort of try to like sort of construct it out of those places and and, and that was really fun as well. Mm. But to get but to like give it this kind of specific and unique feel. And then Hannah, our production designer, just did a great job of building on top of that. Rupert, I've been doing these interviews for over 30 years, and I always ask questions about what it takes to be a great director or writer or actor. But I, you know, I haven't really had a lot of conversations about what kind of skill sets makes 
a successful producer. And just from your vantage point, it just seems like a very intimidating type of job to, to do because there's a director with his or her vision, but then there's a producer who just has so many different elements to work with. And what what does it take in general? I think, I think the key is collaboration. And, and with that, it's just working with the right people. I sort of say, I never hire any dickheads, basically. <laughs> just, just work with nice people who, who you know you get on with. That, that was who. That was the team we all put together, and I, I did that with Jim. And we, you, know, you interview everyone, and you just as soon as they get it, and you and you, you have a connection with those people. You like, we're going to spend a lot of time together, so you, you want to get on with those people. But yeah, it's just about collaboration, really. People who, are, who aren't precious and you know open, open to anything and everything. Mm. And Jim, for you, I see on your IMDb you have a bunch of um, editing credits as well. Would you, for people who really want to get into filmmaking, do you think? Editing, learning how to edit um, pretty much sufficiently and, and efficiently, is, is that a really good element to graduate and then eventually become a director? Is that a key tool to have? 100% is, yeah. I think if you want to direct, you have to be able to edit to an extent. Because you, well, you're editing all the time in your head. Like every time you plan a scene to shoot, you've got to know how it's all going to construct together. So yeah, I mean, I mean, you don't have to be like a good editor. You can take like it can take you like five days to edit one scene if, if like you don't have to be fast, but you need to sort of you need to understand pacing and and like and how to construct stuff because ultimately, even in the edit with an editor, mm. you're the one who's like is the one who's you're gonna, just not moving yeah moving the mouse around. <laughs> yeah you're not, not but you ed- you edited the short though I did do the yeah, short yeah. yeah so I did the short yeah, yeah. I did I've done all my shorts mm. except for my first one. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'd like, I mean, I'd actually like to edit more, but I don't think editors would. (laughs) (laughs) Without giving too much away or spoiling, spoiling the film, at least for this question, how hard was it to actually construct a sequence where there's a bonfire with a bunch of people, there's a chase sequence, and then there's a sort of a mini crowd confrontation scene that just, that sequence just seemed really hard to mount. Or is that tricks because of on the yeah. editing or whatnot? But I don't know. So there was a big build-up to that, wasn't there, from a production perspective? But also, we were operating in COVID, so that, like, with the with the bonfire, you know, lots of essays and stuff, was the first time really we'd had loads of people on set. Yeah. So that was quite sort of edgy. That's... And then the car chase was just like solid, like the hardest rain I've ever seen. Yeah. So, so already we're of, like, yeah. So shooting it, we had all these like problems. So we like already had less footage than we wanted. Yeah. So like editing that was like the bit. You're right, absolutely right. Like the biggest hurdle and the one we're always coming back to. Yeah. And like. Because because it's in documentary style, like you want to have all these shots that like you'd have these big wides and you'd kind of establish things mm-hmm. and you'd have like, but then you just can't have any of that stuff. So you're trying to tell this story with a camera that's just running around everywhere, <laughs> and but also like cover all the all the you know all the dialogue correctly. So it's like yeah, it's a real challenge. And me and Joe Walker, the editor, just you know, just. Well, that was always the one was we were just like okay I think we've done everything else but like park the, the bonfire scene park this up. yeah we'd always like watch the film and get to the bonfire scene and just groan and be like ah oh, it's crap and like, so I think the composer Daniel Pemberton who did a great job especially on those bits yeah that that was a bit as well he we were sort of to and froing on the most on those sort of two sequences from music yeah we had like yeah, sort of, we had all this temp music from like Inception that was just not working I think we had, think we had some temp music from Wallace and Gromit the whole <laughs> yeah. thing too that one. yeah it was like, yeah. It was not right. I find, but it took a while to find. Thank you guys so much for your time. I really love your film. Thanks very nice much. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Take care. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you.